Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. It is 21 days until the election. Thanks for hanging out with us again. We appreciate you. And coming up on the show, the latest from the campaign trail, Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings and the future of VR and robot therapy, because we're going to all need that and more after we get through 2020. That's for sure. Well, the range is most definitely present in today's show. Um, I will say I still have to fill out my mail-in ballot. I have not filled it out yet because there's so many propositions Mm -hmm. that I have to do research on. So I'm making sure I'm voting for the right thing because I just don't feel like, you know, like it takes a a lot of times. Like I have friends that um, got their mail-in ballot and said it took them two hours to fill out. So be responsible about this. You got to research and look up everything you need to know is all I'm saying. Yeah, don't just check off things because, I don't know, you think it sounds familiar or you just want to get through it. That's not the responsible way of doing it. Exactly. Uh, But let's get into so much trending this hour. As we mentioned, lots going on. Chairman of the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, Lindsey Graham, questioned Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett at her confirmation hearings today, trying to dispel the Democrats' belief that she would just come in and challenge certain laws. She has publicly spoken out about in the past, whether it be gay marriage or abortion, among many other things. Yes, you always not judges can't just wake up one day and say, I have an agenda. I like guns. I hate guns. I like abortion. I hate abortion and walk in like a, a royal queen and impose you know, their will on the world. You have to wait for cases and controversies, which is the language of the Constitution, to wind their way through the process. All right. Well, Senator Sass gave us a good. You know, that's exactly what people are afraid of, not just for coming in and changing things like that, but new lawsuits coming in to create an opening to change the law. Now, Trump was speaking to a crowd of thousands of maskless supporters at an airport hangar in Sanford, Florida, on Monday night, his first campaign rally since he has been hospitalized after contracting COVID-19. Here's what he had to say. With me, the nice part. I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel, I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and them. Everybody, I'll just give you a big fat kiss. No, but there. Whew. That was interesting to listen to. And we'll be discussing more about that rally and what's ahead for President Trump this week with the Washington Post next. I mean, he's immune. Good news. Apparently, the folks are telling him. Who knows? Who knew that? Superhero. That's not even the case. There's been anyone. There's so many reports about like people getting it again. And then the second time around has been even worse than the first time. So he better be careful. He is literally a super spreader. 
Mm -hmm. Now, an accidentally cut cable has caused the entire Virginia voter registration system to go down on the last day to register to vote before the election day. How convenient. The Virginia Information Technology Agency tweeted that a fiber cut near Route 10 in Chester, Virginia, is to blame. They said, due to a network out outage, the citizen portal is temporarily unavailable. We are working with our network providers to restore service as quickly as possible. Accidentally, this right? has happened. Air quotes. This is another way of uh, voter suppression. And honestly, those folks should be fired expeditiously. Let's be well, honest. Yeah, we're going to be talking about what's happening in Georgia. Speaking of that, lines upon lines for hours later in the show. Uh, and that's some what's trending this hour. What's going on in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, let's hop into the tea report. Meg Thee Stallion has written a powerful op-ed for the New York Times about being a victim of violence. Uh, the savage rapper said the traumatic experience helped her realize why violence against women um, occur. Uh, she said, after a lot of self-reflection on that incident, I've realized that violence against women is not always connected to being in a relationship. Instead, it happens because too many men treat all women as objects. And here is a clip of a video that actually went along with the essay. What does it mean to be a woman of color? You've got to be strong because that's just the expectation. Loving herself, but not too much because then she's conceited. Being his lady in the streets, but his freak in the sheets. Inheriting her grandma's love, but always loving the wrong one. Oof, very powerful. Very, very powerful. And I love that she's standing in this new, um, uh, you know, moment of activism and yeah. being an activist, speaking out. Now, moving on, Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, he's arguably one of the biggest athletes ever. I even know him. He has tested positive for COVID-19. He's already been sent away from the team so he can self-quarantine. But there was some, there's some major concerns because a photo that Ronaldo posted on social media literally just on Monday showed him crowded around the table with his uh, teammates and no one in the photo is wearing a mask or social distancing. So, wow. I'm hoping he stays safe. Um, he's doing well, you know, the the PFA um, they actually issued a statement saying that he's doing well and he has no symptoms but still yeah. stay healthy and that's your tea report coming up next next hour though I do want to know Shira is it okay to submit to your partner we're gonna dive in next tea report stick around submit like mm -hmm. uh, okay if you're into that like uh, being the alpha or being the submissive well, we'll Got find it. out we'll dive don't don't start diving in now I said next hour Shira I'm next intrigued. hour. Now, coming up, it is day two of Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Find out why originalism will be a big narrative moving forward. We are back in two minutes. Judge Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court nomination confirmation hearings began yesterday. And the word we keep hearing is originalism. Barrett is a self-proclaimed originalist. Embracing a theory of the Constitution that is also shared by at least two other sitting justices, Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. Here she is. Interpret the Constitution as a law, that I interpret its text as text, and I understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time people ratified it. Okay. So that meaning doesn't change over time, and it's not up to me to update it or infuse my own policy views into it. So in other words, you're, you're bound by the people who wrote it at the time they wrote it. That keeps you from substituting your judgment for theirs. Is that correct? Yeah. All right. Uh, now, back with us is political commentator Jackie Copel. Jackie, thanks again for joining us for this. Thanks for having me. 
So I, I did describe a bit of what originalism is, and obviously she also talks about this. Uh, do you think this will help or hurt her um, as she gets confirmed into the seat? I don't think it's I don't think it's a matter of helping or hurting her per se. I think that it gives you a lens into the way that she'll probably conduct herself on the bench. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say she is a hundred percent an acolyte of Scalia. Uh, Scalia is the now past justice who was very conservative. He considered himself an originalist and she is considering himself in much the same way. Uh, For those who are liberal, you might say the saving grace is she seems to be saying in her testimony this week that she understands, you know, what's done is done and cases that have been decided have been decided. Uh, That said, once people get more comfortable on the bench, it is likely that uh, they may change their tune. And in fact, historically, you've actually seen that. You've seen some people who are uh, believed to be more conservative become a little more liberal. Uh, some people might say Justice Chief Justice Roberts is like that. Uh, we'll see what happens with Barrett once she's on, on the court, because presumably she will be. The Republicans have the votes. Uh, so it's, again, it's not a matter of is it good or not good for her. I think it just gives you the lens through which she's going to rule. Yeah, and, you know, I, there's obviously, there's an amazing article on Vox.com that we're kind of referencing here. If you mm-hmm. want to check it out, you should. But there's, they talk about there's three waves of originalism. And the first wave started with Justice Hugo Black. And he was someone who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I think for me, as a person of color, and also intersectional being queer, having knowing that originalism kind of started in this way of it just feels like well how is it going to how is it ever really inclusive moving forward and even if it does have more modern waves and so is there things that we you know the lgbtq community or people of color should be worried about if there is an originalist that is on the supreme court i think for sure um i will note and it is just as you said in this article, that Black, though he was a uh, part of the Ku Klux Klan, once he was on the Supreme Court, he actually ruled almost the polar opposite to what you might have thought. Um, he, he, he was seen actually as the liberal justice that FDR put on the court to help him. The bar him. was on the floor. He was a part yeah, of the Yeah, at that Ku Klux point, Klan. right? <laughs> Well, no, I mean, we talked about this before, uh, that it's based around white supremacy. You're talking about something that was created based on a certain time. So how can it not be a living document? It just seems like it doesn't make sense. Well, uh, Madison and Jefferson uh, actually believed that the Constitution should be rewritten every 19 years. Hmm. Oh, the founding fathers understood, I, I believe, maybe let me rephrase. This is my understanding and my belief. So I'm, I'm putting that out there that the founding fathers seemed to understand that if this document was going to survive, it did have to be somewhat vague in places. And it also did have to be a moving, moving, uh, moving document, right? Almost amoeba like. Uh, there's a guy named Ben Sheehan, who I recently interviewed, who uh, wrote a book. It's called OMG WTF does the constitution actually say and in there uh, you learn that exactly that which is they thought every 19 years you needed a new document uh, he gave the example of it's like a jacket you don't wear the same jacket as a five-year-old as you know you do 19 years later so yeah. similar to that there is a belief by many 
that the founding fathers understood it should be a working document and move with the times. Originalists do not obviously concur, and they believe that the word at the time uh, should stand. Again, that's political commentator Jackie Coppell. Uh, so with that said, it's, we know things have changed, though, inherently because of just where we're at. Uh, so do you think that it allows them to be selective to the things they want to change and not change? Yeah, I think that originalism seems to provide an opportunity for, uh, if you just look at some of these cases and the way that people have ruled, basically expansion of rights does not seem to fall under an originalist reading, most of the time, reading of the Constitution. So it is given how she's ruled before and given, again, her following of Scalia, seems fairly certain uh, she is not, you know, not a proponent of Roe v. Wade. Uh, there is concern that on health care, she is going to vote against the uh, Affordable Care Act to uh, tear down that law. There is concern for LGBTQ protections. What does that look like in the future? Uh, she said that she will remove religion from her, you know, ruling. But again, just as you're implying, it does seem that this originalist uh, viewing of the Constitution does seem to indicate that there's not an expansion of rights. It's a uh, continuation of perhaps what was in the past. Okay, well, thank you so much for the history lesson here. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to be on. And uh, that was Jackie Coppell. You can find that interview and more of her political reports on Instagram at Jackie Coppell. Now coming up, Trump is back on the road. The Washington Post brings us the latest from the campaign trail next in two minutes. President Trump is rushing to get back on the campaign trail just one week after leaving the hospital and before it's even really clear that he's tested negative for the coronavirus. Trump has supposedly tested negative on multiple occasions following his hospitalization. And here he is in Sanford, Florida at that first rally inspiring the country. With me, the nice part. I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there, I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and um, everybody. I'll just give you a big fat kiss. No, but there- And back with us is senior editor for the Washington Post, Mark Fisher. Thanks again for being here. Sure. Good to be with you, Shira. So what was your take on this first in-person appearance that Trump made? Well, this was something the president was clearly uh, eager, if not even lusting, to do. He uh, he lives for those rallies. He has throughout mm-hmm. his first campaign, throughout the presidency, now in the second campaign. And being deprived of them for a week or more uh, was really driving him nuts. And people in the White House are telling us that uh, uh, he was impossible to deal with because he just needed to get out there. And so you see, every time he is out there, he, he revels in it. He absolutely loves being out outrageous, being provocative, uh, mm-hmm. getting the crowd riled up. And he got right into that. And, you know, he talked about kissing people in the crowd. And, and uh, so there's there's this urge that he has to be dangerous, to be uh, to, to get a reaction, to get a rise out of people. That's been at the heart of his ability to win popularity from the very beginning, long before he entered politics. And so here he is back uh, doing that. Now, 
is he winning votes by doing that? There's no evidence of that. Uh, right. Does he seem to want to win votes by doing that? He's only going out and talking to his base. He's not going mm -hmm. out reaching out to those folks in the middle who might still be undecided or voted for him last time and have misgivings about it now. So it's a mixed bag, but uh, you can plainly see he absolutely loves doing it. I mean, but how yep. much can we actually rely on the information coming out of the White House saying that he tested positive, especially when he was in the hospital? It felt like the, the timelines and the information everyone was receiving was completely either off or false. So how are how are people supposed to be reading this, you know, supposed to be taking this information in? Well, obviously, there's a lot of skepticism and uh, con considerable concern that the White House wasn't more forthcoming with information, wasn't giving the kind of detail that we've gotten about previous presidents when they fell ill. Um, but now the White House physician has uh, declared that the president indeed uh, passed a, a, a COVID test, has tested negative on successive days. Uh, so we have no reason to doubt that, um, especially since they had been uh, unwilling to give us test results in the intervening days. So wow. that, that was very much something to doubt. Now that we do have that information, well, okay, maybe he is indeed testing negative. What the doctors are telling us who are not part of the White House, who are independent uh, doctors, basically saying uh, this was not a severe case. Okay. Mark Fisher again joins us, who's a senior editor from the Washington Post. Uh, so I guess how problematic is it, considering this country is still dealing with the impact of the pandemic, uh, to have a president sharing the narrative that, you know, I got through this, it's not that bad, you can be immune, all the things he's sharing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's perplexing on a couple of levels. First of all, just sort of a public health one. Do you really want to send the message that this is no big deal uh, when all of the health authorities are telling us that it is a big deal? And then politically, it doesn't make sense either because you have the president of the United States uh, telling people uh, that uh, this is no big deal when we know from polling that across the board, across the ideologies, people do think this is a huge deal. They are afraid of this. They are taking precautions. And so for the president, to be saying the opposite of what they, what most people perceive to be the truth uh, is not going to win him many votes. So why does he do it? I think he simply can't stop himself. He wants to present mm. himself as a strong man. He wants to present himself as someone who is in total control. And so being in control of his body and being able to overcome this illness is something that he perceives as a show of strength rather than, as most Americans would see it, as a show of dishonesty. But I guess mm. I wonder, um, is it too late? Is it this moment that he was in with, you know, COVID, um, is it too late to kind of show face again and try to, you know, uh, save his campaign? When you look at history, obviously that everything feels unprecedented, but is he too late in the game to try to win this? No, I don't think so. I think uh, there's a long history of the incumbent coming roaring back in the final days of campaigns. Usually for a challenger to win, they have to have a big, fat lead at this late stage. Uh, and Joe Biden has a pretty significant lead of, of double digits, but is it big enough to withstand the inevitable flight to safety of people, Trump voters coming back and saying, well, I was with him last time, maybe I should do it again. All right. Well, Mark Fisher, thanks again for being here. We appreciate it. Good to be with you. That was Mark Fisher, senior editor at The Washington Post. Now coming up, Mitt Romney's powerful social media statement about the current state of American politics. That's coming up in two minutes. 
Senator Mitt Romney is speaking out. He released a pretty intense statement on social media where he is basically reacting to the state of American politics right now, calling out President Trump, calling out Pelosi, calling out the media and Keith Olbermann, basically calling out both sides and says this simply that the world is watching with abject horror. The question is, Will this make a difference as we are moving towards the election right around the corner? Um, will it make a difference? I don't know, to be honest. I think there's so many diff- like layers to this. And uh-huh. I think in, and why, you know, Mitt Romney is so disappointing to so many people. I think, you know, there is actually a lot of Republicans and we even saw some speak at the DNC this year that have actually come out to oppose Donald Trump and the Republican Party because of what they are presenting, what they're standing for. And Mitt Romney, in my opinion, is a coward who likes to play the middle. He likes to um, be on one side showing up at the Black Lives Matter protest, but on the other side, he's rushing this Amy Coney Barry. He, he's, the, he's the type of person that works for the betterment of him and not for the American people, because if he was, he will be standing firmly in some of his decisions instead of trying to play this both sides narrative that I think is problematic. Well, yeah. And of course, we know he was the only Republican to support removing Trump from office. And that caused his approval rating nationally among Republicans to to plunge, soar among Democrats. He was kind of like the possible Republican hero, right? The the one who was going to shift things. But then, as you mentioned, with what we saw with Amy Coney Barrett and him trying to push her to... uh, be replacing that seat in the Supreme Court before the election so quickly. It's like, where do you really stand? And also, how are you taking yourself out of this responsibility and accountability with where we're at? You're part of fueling that fire, right? Like if if you yourself are going to be a big part of those headlines, like you can't act like you're not part of that, like just blaming everyone around you. It's insidious, right? I think it's Republicans like Ben Sass and Mitt Romney that you think about the way they kind of react and the way they kind of, you know, move in politics, it feels like they are just willing to allow, you know, people to just do whatever they want in a sense of being like, well, my hands are clean with it. I, I said what I've said, That's I've shown up and done it. And they're they're trying to evade any type of accountability because they're just like, well, I don't have anything to say. I don't have anything to do with it. I think both sides need to chill. And that is what, why I call him a coward. I, I just, I don't see it any so, other way. I- I'm I'm okay with you telling both sides that right now the current situation is not ideal. We are being looked at, and it's true. I, I mean, every day I speak to someone who's not from here, and they say watching this is it's a dark horror movie right now, but it's our reality. Okay, and so I would have been okay for, with him saying this if he had included himself in it saying I'm part of the problem too. And that's why I am calling all of us to step up and lead by example here, not just for this country, but for the rest of the world. We're never going to get that though, because people like him want to be remembered fondly. They want to be, they want to have a legacy where people can say like John McCain, that he was a person that walks on every, uh, the both sides of the aisle. If we are in this place in history where you, if you cannot stand firmly and call out everything that is happening that is disgusting in this country and this world, why are you here? That's what people are going to remember. They're not going to remember anything else. They're not going to remember your legacy. They're going to remember that you were like Humpty Dumpty sitting in the middle of that wall and you're going to fall off. That's a mic drop moment right there. I was going to read this like powerful quote by Nietzsche, but I feel like it's like (laughs) the slay God quote that ends this. Uh, And so 
I mean, should I read it? I could just read it because I do think it's what we're seeing right now. And, and this is a really powerful one just to sit and think about. Whoever fights monsters, monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. Something to think about as we all navigate this crazy time. Okay, coming up, Johnson & Johnson's just had to stop their vaccine trials. That and more next in What's Trending This Hour. Coming up on the show, a senator reveals his firsthand experience with abortion. The powerful story you'll want to hear. Plus, how virtual reality therapy could help you with PTSD, physical pain, and more. That is coming up. I mean, speaking of therapy, Shira, all of these conversations that we've been having and we're going to be having in this next hour about mm -hmm. women's rep reproductive rights, I wonder, does that ever trigger you at any moment? Like, is it a lot sometimes? Uh, you know, it feels very surreal because it feels like one of those things that we've dealt with, like in the past, like it's very handmaid's tale. Right. Right. And you almost don't feel like it impacts you. I've been fortunate enough and privileged enough that I haven't dealt with anything like that. I've and I'm saying this um, sharing my honesty and my truth. I've never had to have an abortion. Yeah. Uh, so it almost feels like I've never had a scare. Uh, that said, and now I'm finally in the age where I, if possibly I got pregnant, I would have that child. Mm. Um, that said, obviously I'm pro-choice, uh, but it feels like almost, it's hard for me to wrap my head around this idea of not having access to that if you need it. Yeah, and that's right? what I wonder, because, you know, I sometimes I'm, and I've been honest about stuff like when it comes to, you know, racial injustice in the country or just LGBTQ rights, it can be triggering. So I wanted to yeah. do like a little bit of a check-in before we move in, like with, with the rest you. of our, um, our rest of our hour. But y'all, just trigger warning coming up next hour. I mean, well, yeah. this hour. Exactly. Um, and we appreciate you for hanging out with us as we yes. move through these uh, topics that are pretty heavy as well. Yeah, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Speaker Pelosi called out CNN's Wolf Blitzer in an interview on COVID relief. Here that is. Dollars is significant and more than twice the Obama stimulus. Make a deal. Put the ball in McConnell court. So what do you say to Ro Khanna? What I say to you is I don't know why you're always an apologist and many of your colleagues Apologist for the Republican position. Rokana, that's nice. That isn't what we're going to do. And nobody's waiting till February. So not even just this point was heated. The whole moment was heated because I just finished watching a clip that my friend just tweeted out where literally they went back and forth about, you know, Wolf Blitzer is like just being kind of disrespectful to her in a way, in a way that she's he never really is to like <laughs> men. And so she's kind of calling him out on it. And, and it was one of those moments where he was like, well, you need to, you know, do something for the American people who are waiting. And I, you know, I passed them on the streets. They need to be fed. And she said, have you fed them? because we're feeding them. Like they were going Oof. back and forth. It was wild, intense. You know, I'm I'm not gonna say I'm happy that this happened, but I feel like the narrative is always like, oh yeah, you know, the left-leaning media and like, um, and then the right, everything's split. But this showed how Pelosi is gonna call out both sides. Like whether she's on Fox News or CNN, if someone needs to be called out, she's gonna say something, no matter where you think people are or broadcasters are on the political spectrum. I agree. So there you go. Fair is fair. Meanwhile, Senator Majority Leader, sorry, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced he plans to introduce a targeted COVID-19 relief package next week. And then minutes later, President Trump urged Congress to, quote, go big or go home on another round of stimulus talks, despite objections within the Republican Party to his latest $1.8 trillion proposal. 
So, I mean, yeah, something's got to give at this point. And I don't know what's going to happen. Now, Johnson & Johnson said today that it learned of the unexplained illness, which caused it to pause its phase three coronavirus vaccine trial in the U.S. on Sunday. And immediately they informed the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, which monitors clinical trial developments. I'm sure they're very busy right now. The drug maker said it did not know whether the volunteer who became ill had received the vaccine or placebo. They said we're now waiting on further medical information, evaluation. But by the way, if you're wondering, it is not at all unusual for unexpected illnesses to occur in large studies over their duration. So this shouldn't be that surprising. And once again, there are a lot of other vaccines in trial right now and being looked at. And now let's move into top stories in pop culture and entertainment news. What's the tea, Ryan? Okay, so really big question coming out of the tea report. Is it wrong to submit to your partner? And let me give you some backstory here. So Jenny Mai, host of The Real, she is defending herself after receiving backlash for saying that she wanted to submit to her fiance, Jeezy, who is a rapper, once they tied the knot. Now, last mm-hmm. week, she did admit that she's a very dominant woman, but wants to submit to her man. Here's that clip. So I'm going to say right here that I, Jeannie Mai, going into my marriage, I want to submit to my man. Let me explain. When I hear this... Wow. Definition, like you just said, Adrian, submitting has a negative connotation. It means that you are less important. You are lower than that person that you're submitting to. I'm a very dominant woman. So I make the decisions in my life. When I come home, I am a, I, I like the idea that my man leads us. So, Shira, what do you think about this? I, when I saw this story, I immediately thought about you. Are you submitting to your partner? Is it wrong? I think if that's what you're into, I mean, they call it a dom-sub dynamic for a reason. Yeah. I mean, that's like a fetish. I don't think she beats it's, it's it. Like, I know it's a well, kink, that's what I don't it feels think... like. Well, but <laughs> We're not talking about it in no, that so it's, it's not up to me to, like, uh, to judge that. But that said, and what's her name? That's the other host, uh, Kelly. Kelly Ripa has said this before. She's very alpha in her everyday life and in business, and she likes to go home and be, you know, ha- have her husband take control. Yeah, that's and what Jenny was basically say, saying as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I I feel that because I feel like in my everyday life I need to make a lot of decisions. I'm nonstop, and I want to kind of let go when I'm in my relational dynamic with my partner and in in our intimate spaces. However, I've been told that I'm a dominant or a sub dom where it's like i pretend i'm a sub but i'm really dominant yeah here's what jenny here's basically what jenny wrote on instagram she said by giving the power to have someone lead in your life is power in itself the power to relish uh relinquish control yeah willingly submit not forcibly submit um and so i yeah i i i like it but that's uh, i would love to know what y'all have to say and what y'all are thinking about this juicy topic head over to we are channelq.com and lgt show everywhere that's your team report <laughs> love it okay coming up virtual reality might be the next big medical breakthrough we discuss why in two minutes Supposedly, virtual reality, a.k.a. VR, can lower blood pressure, treat eating disorders, and combat anxiety, PTSD, even among veterans. VR can help deliver babies and so much more. I mean, there's a lot there. And so we want to talk more about this because VR therapy could be the future. Joining us right now is Vina Somaretti, who's the co-founder and CEO of Neuro Rehab VR. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So... 
this isn't anything new. I mean, I've been somewhat in the VR world but for a lot of people who haven't really been talking about this or seeing this firsthand. How would this even work to treat pretty um, intense illnesses and mental health disorders? Right. Yeah, VR has been around since the 90s, but it didn't really come into the mainstream. It's still not in the mainstream, I guess, yet. But uh, in, since 2012, since I've been working on that VR has been used for treating pain, anxiety, stress. In my company, we use VR for virtual reality, physical therapy and training. And the science behind it is there's so much research out there that shows that VR distracts you from that pain. Just like when you go to the dentist, you know, they're distracting you from what are they trying to do or giving you a shot. But that on steroids, you are in this virtual world, you're totally immersed and your brain is tricked into thinking that you're actually in that world and not in the situation that you were previously in the real world. And that's what uh, helps it uh, bring down pain, take out anxiety. And also, uh, like you said in the article, there's a, it uh, helps with the prefrontal cortex where it takes away all those distractions and you're now focused on one thing. But ADHD too. Yeah, and but I think my hmm. question was because I feel like you know Facebook and all these big companies have been trying to push it, and obviously they even said that I think it'll be like uh, you know VR will generate eighty billion dollars in revenue by twenty twenty five. Is it going to be accessible for everyone to be able to experience this in some way? Like this lady in this article from the New York Post, they talked about how she used it during giving birth. Is that really accessible? I mean, it has come a long way. In back in 2012, 2013, when I was still working on this, the systems would cost at least, you know, 2,000, 3,000. You need a headset, you need a gaming laptop. But now you can have access to VR for about $400. And that's how inexpensive it is. And then you have, you have access to what the lady had access to. That What she was using was mostly a VR device with a mobile phone in there. So you can look at pretty scenarios. And that's, you know, everybody has a mobile phone. You just need that headset to slot it in. So it's becoming more and more accessible. And Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Google are putting billions of dollars into it. And in the near future, it's going to be much more accessible, probably just for glasses that you'd wear. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, I remember those Google glasses. That didn't really work out well. That that did not work out. But <laughs> the second or the third iteration might work out. Okay. Venus Amoretti is with us right now, co-founder and CEO of Neuro Rehab VR, as we talk about VR therapy. Uh, do you think these things will now be in hospitals or at doctors' offices? Would insurance pay for this in the future? It's already there in a few different hospitals across the U.S. and even in Europe. Uh, there is it's two ways where insurance does pay for things uh, for some parts of it and it doesn't for the others. But as we see how CMS and Medicare is going, they're always looking at patient experience, the quality of care that the patients are getting and quantitative feedback. This will definitely get paid for sure uh, in all different realms and in the future. What's your, what, what do you think the balance is when it comes to technology being involved into like our health and our everyday life? I know there's a lot of skeptics out there that feel like there should, you know, technology shouldn't be like running our lives to an extent, right? This seems like this could be very healthy and good, but right. there's always another side to it. You mean the ready set? Yeah, uh, yeah. The world. Yeah, I mean, that could happen, but I think we're much further away from that. But uh, it depends on the experiences that you build. We are trying to do as good as we can, everybody in the VR community, to make this technology as helpful so that it's better than when you compare it to the opioid crisis, 
you get addicted to opioids right now you're just taking out the headset and you're fine so this is a much better alternative mm. than there is and then especially with now with covid and everybody being everybody being isolated it's such a amazing feeling to get transported into a virtual beach or in the mountains yeah. and i transport myself sometimes too and then you know use vr for working out these days because it's hard to go to the gyms so it's definitely helping me out and you, there's always a balance obviously but i think it's going in the right direction i love that yeah I mean, I, yeah, I could see how someone could get addicted to that, right? And you're just like, living in that world versus the real world. Right. Do you, do you have doctors or therapists that then work as to integrate what you learn in the VR world into your actual life? Yes. Yeah. We have uh, therapists on our team and even the hospitals and the clinics that we work with. Uh, we go set up a system for them. They learn how to use it and they start using it with patients. Uh, in their everyday therapy plans. So it's already so, happening. Okay. Uh, so I guess where are you seeing the biggest change right now that people should take note of? Uh, the thing about VR is it's affecting uh, many different areas. Education, uh, especially in the, the medical field, uh, it doesn't make sense when you're looking at 3D anatomy on a textbook. You'd rather see it in 3D. It's a much better way to learn. And then there is training and simulation, especially in the oil and gas industry, heavy machinery. You'd rather have uh, annotations and everything in right in front of your face, uh, you know, you know, on a headset. And then you know how to, you know, work those systems or call in into a specialist. They can see what the, you're doing. So there's training, simulation, and then there's therapy and rehab is the what we focused on in my company for rehabilitation. Amazing. Well, thank you again for your work. This is so cool. Yeah, thank you. Again, that is Vina Somoretti, co-founder and CEO of Neuro Rehab VR. Check out what they're doing in the VR therapy space. Now coming up with Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings taking place right now. Many are wondering what a post-Roe world would look like. We tell you in two minutes. Roe versus Wade is on everyone's minds right now as Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett, known for her conservative views, is replacing RBG's seat. Here she is during the confirmation hearings today discussing her ability to change laws as a Supreme Court judge. Yes, you always not judges can't just wake up one day and say I have an agenda. I like guns. I hate guns. I like abortion. I hate abortion and walk in like a, a royal queen and impose, you know, their will on the world. You have to wait for cases and controversies, which is the language of the Constitution to wind their way through the process. And joining us to break down what the future of abortion could look like is Michelle Goodwin, a law professor at UC Irvine and the author of the book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. Yes, this is an intense day for many. As you know, Amy Con Coney Barrett is being brought into the Supreme Court, we know some of her thoughts and beliefs around abortion rights. Is it possible for Roe versus Wade to be turned over? I think that's on everyone's minds. Well, Roe v. Wade is vulnerable. And to be clear, we're really living under a case that's after Roe, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And it's that case which has opened the door for so much of the litigating that's been done in the Supreme Court about abortion rights. It opened the door for states to enact laws, many of which are just rooted in absurdity, but that police women's bodies in myriad kinds of ways. And we saw this summer in the Supreme Court when one of those kinds of laws was struck down in June Medical v. Rousseau. This is a law that required that 
doctors have hospital admitting privileges in order to do abortions in Louisiana. And the court found that such laws were unconstitutional because they rendered no medical benefit for women. So I want to make sure that we make this conversation as inclusive as possible and acknowledge that not all people with vaginas and reproductive systems identify as women. Um, I thought that was really important. But uh, have Republicans ever been close to changing Roe versus Wade? I know in, back in 2010, Republicans had a lot of control of state legislature. I guess, how restrictive has it gotten when it comes to a more of a recent modern history? Well, it is. Between 2010 and 2013, there were more anti-abortion and anti-contraception laws that were proposed and enacted than in the 30 years prior combined. And it's important to note that that was deeply connected to race, just like the history of anti-abortion was itself, right? Obama was in the White House, and this reflected the rise of the Tea Party at the state level. And it's important to note that their efforts were not only to upend abortion rights, but also voting rights, immigration rights, voter suppression increase, laws against abortion uh, increase, anti-environmental efforts, all of this come in the same. And all of these matters attack human beings in the United States. Yeah, definitely. And again, you're hearing from Michelle Goodwin, who is the author of the book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood, as we talk about Roe v. Wade and the confirmation of Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, So I guess with all that said and all this history, what will happen now that she is in the Supreme Court? Just a lot of people, I think, are worried if things change at a federal level, does that mean people are just going to be getting them illegally? Like, where do we end up? So that's a really good question. So people may travel hundreds of miles into to go to a state where abortions remain legal. And to be clear, abortions are legal now. It's still legal in states. The efforts will be to try to undermine abortion rights by a thousand strikes is one of the things that you might hear, which is to make it so difficult where it's still legal on the books and you could have people who are being vetted for coming onto federal court saying, I believe in upholding the precedent. But at the ground level, it is so difficult where basically individuals are shackled from being able to obtain an abortion in the states in which they live, meaning that they might have to drive hundreds of miles someplace else, or it could mean that they obtain an abortion illegally, Mm -hmm. such as going back to back alley abortions. That's quite possible. And that was even the case after Roe v. Wade for many poor people who were not able to afford to pay for an abortion. Yeah, that's what I I was sitting here wondering. I'm like, does a post-Roe really even change anything you know people are it seems like people will continue to do what they've always done especially in low-income areas well so what is clear is that with roe v wade this liberalized reproductive rights and i put that around air quotes because reproductive rights had not extended to reproductive justice it made it such that if you were middle class and white it meant that you had access to health care in that regard but it meant that if you didn't fall in those categories if you were poor it was still a struggle and I would be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, a person is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by terminating it. 
So these are real life and death matters. Can we actually talk about one of the major Republican talking points that we see and hear them talking about on like Fox News about people getting abortions late term? Is that really happening? And is it just as simple as someone waking up saying that they don't want to have their babies anymore? Aren't health issues normally tied to to most cases in this matter? It's an excellent point that you make, Ryan, which are two important things is that the United States is still not embraced that everybody des- deserves health care as a human right, which if we did have health care as a human right, it means that nobody's waiting until a, a late term air quote, because that's mm-hmm. just ridiculousness, you know, that was created by legislators and judges to talk about abortion in, in that regard. But it would mean healthy, safe, early access. That's one thing. And the second is that actually the majority of abortions are not performed in that air quote, you know, late term, not at all. So again, this has been able, what we see is that some people have controlled the rhetoric around this healthcare procedure and have removed it from healthcare and instead emboldened themselves and their rhetoric in this space. We're far removed from science and medical knowledge in the way in which they talk about abortion. Well, thanks again for joining us for this. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That was Michelle Goodwin, a law professor at UC Irvine, the author of the book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Now coming up, a Michigan senator has come out to share his heart-wrenching personal experience with abortion. That's next in two minutes. We just came off of a conversation about what the future of this country would look like if Roe versus Wade was reversed. And it's honestly so, it's scary to in, uh-huh. a, in a way, but it, it's like we mentioned, you know, it kind of feels like it's just going to continue with how it's continuing now, right? People are still going to unfortunately find ways of doing it and it won't be safe. It won't be, it won't be good at the end of the day, you know, it's not going to help yeah. anyone. Because there are some states where there are bans or some places where, you know, it it is ours to get to a safe space to do this procedure. And as Amy Coney Barrett, the hearings are happening to confirm her into the Supreme Court. This discussion is, you know, really coming to a head. And we haven't really seen anyone politically ever share their own personal story with it beyond their overall views. And a Michigan senator who is actually facing a, a tense reelection race has become the first sitting senator, male or female, to share a personal abortion story with the public. And of course, in doing this, he said, this is the time because uh, these are, are are things that are being questioned right now. And if you're going to question it, go look into someone's face who's actually had to experience it, you know, in the and he shares his story, the, the fourth month of pregnancy. And it was a life or death situation with his wife. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this this reminds me of when Jimmy Kimmel started to go political when he Mm -hmm. was um, when his child, his son was born and he had some defects and there was like a a healthcare situation that was going on. And that was like a switch for him. And it's it's a switch for so many people we start to see who are in cases of privilege where they start to realize, oh, this can affect me as well. Right. This is can, you know, impact my family or impact my loved ones. And. It's it's crazy, and I'm I'm so happy the senator is sharing his story because yes, this is something that we see with Americans across the the country who don't have the opportunity to tell their story through L. You know, it's it's important yeah. when you they have these moments of being like, oh, it happens to me, and then now they're getting it. Not saying yes. they didn't get it before, but you never know. 
Well, Senator Gary Peters told, as you mentioned, Elle magazine, the mental anguish someone goes through is intense. Trying to have a miscarriage for a child that was wanted. They were told to miscarry naturally. When that didn't happen, they went back to the hospital. But guess what? The doctor recommended an abortion, but said it couldn't be provided there as the hospital had a ban. So thankfully, they ended up bringing it to urgent and critical medical care. But if not, his former wife said she would have lost her life. And he said, I've always considered myself pro-choice and believe women should be able to make these decisions themselves. But when you live it in real life, you realize the significant impact it can have on a family. Uh, So something like this is needed a personal story to change minds possibly. But then also this video has been circulating everywhere on social media from Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, during a Fox News town hall in 2019, explaining why 6,000 women per year have to terminate their pregnancies in the third trimester. Do you believe at any point in pregnancy, whether it's at six weeks or eight weeks or 24 weeks or whenever, that there should be any limit on a woman's right to have an abortion? You know, I think the, the dialogue has got so caught up on where you draw the line that we've gotten away from the fundamental question of who gets to draw the line. And I trust women to draw the line when it's their own. So again, a mic drop. He said it in an amazing way. Uh, Again, we'll be continuing to follow all these stories as they happen here on the show. Now coming up, Puerto Ricans are calling for a state of emergency because of violence against women. That's next in our What's Trending This Out. Coming up on Let's Go There, what's happening in the foster care system during this pandemic? This is something that is a big issue. We actually have not talked about this yet during this time on the show. So we decided now was the time. Yeah. And, you know, it does remind me because I don't know if you know this, but I feel like I've said this on the show. But at one point when I was young, my mom actually was a foster parent. Yeah, she Mm. actually took in a couple of kids and then also my aunt's uh, children when my aunt was going through um, addiction um, Mm. situations. And so there's I've always had a soft spot for foster kids and Literally, the the fact that no one is talking about this or thinking about this, I'm so happy we're covering it today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for sharing that, Ryan. Uh, But let's get into some what's trending this hour. During the confirmation hearings today, Judge Amy Coney Barrett was asked about her stance on same-sex marriage by Senator Dianne Feinstein and if she agrees with Judge Scalia's criticism of the ruling. Senator, I have no agenda, and I do want to be clear that I have never discriminated on the basis of sexual preference and would not ever discriminate on the basis of sexual preference. You know, like racism, I think discrimination is abhorrent. Um, On the questions of law, however, I just, because I'm a sitting judge and because you can't answer questions without going through the judicial process, can't give answers to those very specific questions. Now, this moment definitely stood out. Everyone was reacting to it. And then Barrett had to apologize after Senator Hirono called her out for using the term sexual preference as an outdated term used by anti-LGBTQ activists versus sexual orientation. And the second point was to say that I certainly didn't mean and, you know, would never mean to use a term that would cause any offense in the LGBTQ community. So if... I did. I greatly apologize for that. I simply meant to be referring to Obergefell's holding with respect to same-sex marriage. Yeah, you know, people are on, uh, I think, 
not the senator, but I think the people reacting to it. And if uh, really me, I was like, oh, well, here we go. We're already yeah. starting to see what we're going to get. But I do like that she did apologize. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's interesting. I'm looking at the online reaction and, and some people actually really like her for what it is. I know people have pointed out that all she's had on her de- on the little table was a, a notepad and a pen. And because she's used to being able to kind of go back and forth with senators and uh, she's just been very strong in her answers, apparently. So we'll see. I don't know. It's very interesting. I haven't seen everything. But girl, if people start liking her, what in the world? We're in the Twilight Zone. I mean, yes. And of course, her actions will speak louder than her words. And yeah, I'm worried about the people uh, feeling they're, they're endeared by her. Like that could lead to some things that are very questionable <laughs> yeah, and possibly yeah. problematic. For sure. Uh, all right. Well, a U.S. federal appeals court panel on Monday upheld Texas Governor Greg Abbott's order to shut down dozens of mail ballot drop off sites weeks before November's election. The ruling comes after a federal judge on Friday tried to stop the order. This is what the court wrote in its ruling, leaving the governor's October 1st proclamation in place still gives Texas absentee voters many ways to cast their ballots in the November 3rd election. These methods for remote voting outstrip what Texas law previously permitted in a pre-COVID world. So they're basically saying, yeah, they're going to limit those drop-off locations for absentee ballots. Mm. So just prepare yourself because guess what? Voters in Georgia faced hours of long lines yesterday as people flocked to the polls for the first day of early voting in the state, which has developed a national reputation in recent years for voting issues. And those Many are people of color, by the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that's where they're happening in these in these places where people of color exist and living while they're trying to vote. Yeah, videos were coming out on social media. Many people enduring waits of six hours or more. I mean, that is wild. Uh, and nationally, more than 9.4 million people have already voted, which is a pretty unprecedented number uh, right now leading up to this election. And finally, as Puerto Rico struggles to recover from multiple turmoils, the economic crisis and COVID-19, another crisis is plaguing the territory, rising violence against women. In the past two weeks, Puerto Rican media has reported the killings of three women in an attack to a transgender woman. And so a draft of an executive order that would address violence against women in the island is being reviewed by Governor Wanda Vasquez. Meanwhile, Vasquez, whose term ends in January, acknowledges the gender violence crisis on the island, uh, but has not yet issued a state of emergency. Just last week, the governor endorsed President Trump for re-election, despite the widespread criticism over his handling of Puerto Rico's hurricane relief. Okay, that was some What's Trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so I am really loving this thing that we're doing in the T-Report where we're having some Mm -hmm. deeper discussions because I need to pose a question. Have celebrities learned their lessons on trying to do these moments? Remember back in the day, right? I feel like it's back in the day, but right in the beginning of pandemic where uh, Gal Gadot gathered all her celebrity fans and started singing Imagine um, to encourage people. If you don't remember, here's that clip. Imagine there's no heaven. Well, oh God, my ears. <laughs> 
She's finally speaking out and reacting to it because guess what? When she got all that backlash of people being like, what is this, honey? Um, she literally never spoke out about it. And now she's talking to Vanity Fair saying, sometimes, you know, you try and do a good deed and it's just not the right good deed. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, I had nothing but good intentions and it came from the best place. I just wanted to send light and love to the world. Now, Shira, because that's your sign off, do you think that celebrities have learned their lessons? Are they going to continue to do this tone deaf stuff? I'm sure. Listen, you always say you learn, as we know, and then something comes up, you think you learn, and then you realize there's another lesson to learn. <laughs> well, here's, here's actually some back uh, knowledge of like how it even started. She even told Vanity Fair saying, I started with a few friends and then I spoke to Kristen Wiig. Kristen is like the mayor of Hollywood. Everyone loves her. And so she bought in a bunch of people to the game. So apparently she's saying that uh, Kristen was the person that got all the folks together. Yes, if you want to uh, watch that full interview and, and read that full interview, head over to WeirdChannelQ.com, honey, because that is a team report. Okay, coming up, how do you find a home for a foster child during a pandemic? We tell you in two minutes. Many people have taken a financial hit during the pandemic, which brings up the question, what happens to foster children who are in families that either had to relocate or couldn't afford to foster them anymore? And joining us is Dr. Lena Az-Lessing, who's a clinical professor of social work at Boston University as we dive into this. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. You know, it's interesting. This is the first time we've covered this in this entire period, but it's a huge issue. How has it impacted foster families right now? What are you seeing? It it is a huge issue, and it's it's hard to really get um, a sense of what's happening because uh, foster care systems are run by individual states. And so it makes it difficult to get a sense of what's happening to to children in real time. But uh, we know that the system is, um, that the system struggles even in good times, that there aren't enough good foster homes and good settings for, for the number of children that are taken into foster care. And so when something like the pandemic hits, well, actually nothing, nothing has been like the pandemic, um, in terms of its impact on on our lives, um, it's especially hard on the most vulnerable, and that's true for children in foster care. Well, the thing that I found so interesting about this is obviously so many Americans are, around the country have lost their jobs or are just having a hard time financially, and so kind of taking on this added stress of bringing in a foster parent or a foster kid, excuse me. Um, could seem like a lot. Is that one of the main reasons why we're seeing such a huge disconnect, especially when it comes to these kids not finding homes? Well, part of the problem is that for children who are already placed with foster parents, um, the the COVID-19 pandemic uh, presents a real threat in terms of just them being able to stay where they are especially with foster parents or other members of the, of the foster family who may be immunocompromised, who may uh, be elderly, and uh, certainly there are plenty of older people providing foster care. And so there's concern right there, particularly if the child runs away and is exposed to other children and then comes back. Um, but yes, I mean, these are stressful times for all families. And so uh, foster children are often uh, children who have been traumatized, who have mental health needs. 
and special education needs. And it's hard to address all those needs with many schools closed, with courts closed, uh, with with a lot of uh, mental health services uh, difficult to come by because Definitely. of social distancing. Again, we're talking to Dr. Lynette A.Z. Lessing, who's a clinical professor of social work at Boston University as we talk about the foster care system right now. So what you said, I mean, recruitment for new foster parents is down in some states, uh, potential caregivers for your infection and the stress of parenting right now. Court systems are slowing down. Those other spaces yes. for support are closed. So what options are there right now? You know, what are people supposed to be doing? Well, it's it. That's that's a difficult uh, question to answer because every situation is different, and every every state and community is in a different situation. But um, we, you know, what I have seen is is organizations, particularly community based organizations, having to cobble together settings for for foster children who've been exposed or potentially exposed or who have tested positive for COVID nineteen. And some of those are small group care kinds of, of settings, uh, but they're not ideal. I mean, we, we know that the best place for children, for most children, is in a family. Right. And so it's, it's been very difficult to develop solutions on the fly. And again, when you're talking about a system that is, was already in trouble before the pandemic hit right. without enough good places for children to, to be cared for, that's especially challenging. One of my worries is, is that we're going to see more children in very tenuous temporary kinds of situations like shelter care. And uh, that's that's not a good place for kids. So, And I want to talk about that because you made a great point talking about the system. On a federal level, do you feel like these systems are just being overlooked? Yes, I, I think that's a good point. And when you think about it, you know, there are over 400,000 children in foster care at any given time. And unless there's a big scandal of some sort, you never hear about the foster care system and you never hear what's happening to children in that system. And um, it's certainly during the, all, of the, all of the conversations about COVID relief and helping states and communities and businesses, restaurants, You don't hear so much. Uh, I I honestly haven't heard anything about additional stimulus funds to help state agencies that are caring for foster children or community-based nonprofits that also uh, provide a lot of support to children in foster care. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a really important place to see additional uh, resources. And it seems like if you can be a foster parent, then now's the time to do it, definitely. Yes, although it's not like adopting a puppy. Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. That's what I was wondering if you even recommended it right now, because it does seem like there's it's a lot of flaws and there's a lot of, you know, high risk situations. So I was even wondering if you even recommended it right now. Well, the, the system always needs good, loving homes for children. And I, I wouldn't discourage anyone at all from pursuing that, but just to understand that foster parents have to be carefully screened. Uh, They have to undergo a home study. There needs to be references. And then they have to undergo training in order to be able to understand the kinds of needs that they're taking in halves. Of course. Thank you again for joining us for this. My pleasure. 
That was Dr. Lynette Easy lessing a clinical professor of social work at Boston University. Now coming up with mental health at the forefront right now, how automated can it get? And can robots be the future of supporting those in need? Basically all of us. We discuss what that looks like next. A new study suggests that robots might be able to take care of human mental health better than humans can. But how would that even work? Back with us is Val Wright, Senior Director of Healthcare Innovation and American Psychological Association. Thanks for joining us for this. Thanks for having me. So we know that AI and robots are taking over many industries. You know, we might not even exist anymore in the future. Uh, but how would it work for our mental health? Like, should psychologists, therapists, and psychiatrists be worried that their jobs are at risk? I think that some are worried, but I'm more hopeful that people view technology as um, another solution to help us address the issues that occur in healthcare. And those issues include making sure people have access to care and that they can get the best quality care that they can. And I think that's where the role of technology really is going to play, not necessarily replacing humans in this field. You know, I love watching sci-fi tech movies and shows. That's like my thing, right? And so when I'm watching it, I'm really into, into it. But when this idea of it like happening in real life don't you think patients would kind of long for that human connection still? Like, is that going to be a missing part of like, if we start integrating too much technology into these everyday kind of settings? Yeah, I think that, you know, where we know the research suggests it's most effective is when we use technology along with the relationship that's already established. So you're already working with the therapist and then they introduce maybe an app that helps you work on things like mindfulness or to track your symptoms and your emotions during that week when you're not in, with your therapist. I think that's where it can be really helpful. Or maybe you've got more than one issue to work on. And so you use software to help you with your insomnia while you're working with your therapist on your anxiety. I think that's really how it's gonna be the most effective. The therapist brings the empathy. We need that relationship to really make change. So it's not like robots taking over the therapist job where you're sitting down with a robot or AI to talk through your problems. It seems like some people like in this article, it said 82% of people surveyed in 11 countries believe robots can support their mental health better than humans. So I guess the question is, why don't we trust our fellow humans? Well, I think that, you know, when you're looking at an international study like this one, there is probably some cultural components, right? Where in some cultures, they aren't, there isn't that sort of, um, sense of being able to go and talk to somebody about your problems. It's mm. shameful. You're not able to. In America, it's a little bit different. I think the conversations have changed. Um, so again, it's it's really about um, using that technology to help enhance the therapeutic relationship. Yeah, I love that. Vail Wright, again, is with us, Senior Director of Healthcare Innovation at the American Psychological Association as we talk about robots possibly re replacing humans to support people with their mental health. So you're all about the healthcare innovation. So what are you tech like using as of now that's really kind of this blend of technology and what we're seeing? So we're seeing a few different things in the space right now. One on one side of the continuum are what are referred to as wellness apps. So those are the kinds of things you can buy in the app store like Calm or, or Happyfy. Then you've got um, softwares that are actually meant to deliver a treatment to somebody when they're working with another professional. And then you do have some new movements towards chatbots, where it is more of that robot AI, natural language processing kinds of things, where for people who maybe don't have super severe mental health problems could find it useful to just work with a chat box. So there's a lot happening in this space right now. Yeah, definitely. Are there ethical implications around this? 
Well, certainly. I mean, you want to ensure that um, that whatever technology you're using, you know exactly what its function is, where your data is going, um, where your privacy is, who has access to it. Those are some of the really important ethical issues that you can only really find when you read the fine print. And most of us don't read the fine print when we're using these sorts of things. I want to go back to this idea of like, even like little apps are considered kind of these technological advancements. Like I had, I would never register the Calm app as like, oh, this is a big part of technology. Mm. So what's the disconnect here? Because I guess on your phone, it feels different than what we're talking about when it comes to like robots. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that... um... Certainly in the mental health space, I, I don't know that we'll ever be sitting across face to face from like a actual robot like you might see in like the Terminator movie or something. Are the I think again, I think they're the Jetsons. <laughs> Remember the Jetsons? That was already supposed to be happening by this by twenty twenty and obviously yeah. it didn't. So while the technology obviously outpaces the research, which is part of the problem, I also don't think it's going to necessarily look like me sitting across from a a plastic robot anywhere in the next two years. I think it's really going to be using devices and technologies delivered via devices, whether, again, that's kind of like a chat bot at its most extreme or um, engaging in some sort of therapeutic way um, with software. All right. What do you say to people who are maybe scared of this future or are scared about jumping on board? I think that there will always be traditional ways to access therapy. Um, I don't think that's ever going to go away. So I think people who want that will be able to access that and that those who are maybe more comfortable using technology as a mode to work on their mental or their physical health, that'll meet their needs too. I think that's a really big open space and we have to address the problems with getting access to mental health care. And I think, you know, yeah. and I would wonder if you agree, has the pandemic really helped us kind of go into that space where mm. we're understanding technology a little bit differently in this level? Yeah, the pandemic has been really huge as a catalyst to move towards, in particular, telehealth yeah. and therapy using, say, teleconferencing kind of platforms as well as telephone only. And we know that that's increased access and we know both of those um, avenues are effective, just as effective as um, in-person therapy. What we don't really know still is which technology works for who under which conditions. And until we answer those questions, I think robots are still a fair long way away. Okay, well, Bill Wright, thanks again for opening up our eyes into this This space. This is so cool. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, Bill Wright is again the Senior Director of Healthcare Innovation at the American Psychological Association. I should have said our eyes and our minds because it is mental health. Okay, coming up on 911 Colin Karen learns what karma is. That is next on our Yaz Queen of the Day. It is time for our Yaz Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. So an anti-masker called 911 to claim discrimination and a queer shopkeeper became a viral hero. Now, this footage was taken at a pet shop in Palm Springs, California. Shout out to everyone listening in Palm Springs. We Mm -hmm. love you. We're thinking about you. And it was recorded as this woman is basically calling 911. The shop refused to let her into the store because she didn't want to wear a mask. Uh, Aiden Bearpaw is the queer employee at the Bones and Scones pet store. He posted that video to social media following this encounter last week. And here's what went down. You hear me? I'm just doing my job. Can you step outside? Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, could you make sure that this gentleman gives me his name as well, ma'am, just through the phone? Can you at least help me to get his name? If I could have your name too, because you're... My name's Aiden Bearpaw. I'm an employee here at Bones and Scones. Good. Perfect. 
So at least I have your name because if I wanted to, I could take it further and I won't. Okay, fine. I'm not here to do that. Okay, have a but lovely in day. And I was discriminated against okay. for not being able to stop shopping your store. That's your narrative. Okay. So that's a little clip of what actually happened. Uh, but this yeah. woman is ridiculous and crazy. I mean, the fact that she wanted to in the video, you'll hear her citing, you know, when she's on the phone with 911, the operator, she's like citing, talking about the Civil Rights Act. And she's also talking about how she's going to hit up Robert D. Kennedy and all these other names. And it's just like, girl, you're doing all of that and taking up so much time when all you could have done was put mm -hmm. on a mask. It's not how embarrassing deal. Yes. And of course, Aiden has since become, as I mentioned, a viral hero. And here he is being interviewed by the local news. And you could hear also the owner of the store praising him. I'm biased, but it's a shining example of how just doing what's right, standing your ground, overcomes all of those things. Aiden won for us that day. He didn't just win for Bones and Scones. He won for the city of Palm Springs, for the United States, and for humanity in general. It's worth it. That's worth, you know, just wearing. Which is interesting, oh. though, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, the manager, Jay Smith, you just heard. It, it's interesting because I think at first he was scared, like it was going to be a bad look on the store, until, of course, uh, Aiden went viral. Um, not even just that. He, uh, the the store owners, and and I'm assuming him as well, were upset that he even recorded it. And then yeah. uh, the the coworkers, Aiden's coworkers, had to stand up, being like, "There will be consequences if he gets fired." So the, there was a rallying of community, and then now you see the manager like being like, "Oh, he is a shining example." It was just, it was hilarious. And honestly, Aiden, you're my hero for having to deal with all that, honey. But uh, Shout out to Bones and Scones uh, because you should go and take a picture with Aiden if Aiden still works there. Yeah, I think, I mean, that was last week. So unless he's moved on to, you never know. um, who knows? Yeah. Anything could happen. Deals. Aiden can go on Ellen and call and be uh, the next like superhero, like influencer. Who knows? <laughs> that is true. Uh, that does it for our Yes Queen of the day. Yeah. Yes, Queen. We gotta get back to Palm Springs soon because we do. I, I shout out to y'all. We miss you very, very much, and we we always are gonna report and give our yes queens to Miss a Mr. Aiden or Miss Aiden. You know, I feel like Miss Aiden is a uh, you know unisex. Whatever they want to go by, we yeah, are down for, for it. Sure. And you can always slide into our DMs at LGT Show on social media if you want to nominate someone for our yes queen of the day. We love to hear from you. Uh, now, we'll be back tomorrow right here on Channel Q, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, live, getting into a lot of the news happening around the confirmation hearings, of course. We bring you that in real time. Uh, plus, what you need to know about getting coronavirus twice. Are you immune, as Trump says? We will be talking about that and more on tomorrow's show. And if you miss any of our shows, you can listen to everything as a podcast. Join our podcast family. Just go to the radio.com app and search Let's Go There and subscribe so you're notified when we post new episodes. We're sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow.